This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On Monday night, as Rishi Sunak attended COP27, he made it clear that the climate wasn't the only crisis he was there to address. I'm actually leaving this with renewed confidence and optimism that working together with our European partners, we can make a difference, grip this challenge of illegal migration and stop people coming illegally. Number 10 says the government is about to sign a deal with France in a desperate bid to tackle the channel migrant crisis. For months now, the number of people making dangerous journeys in small boats and dinghies has been rapidly rising. If you take a look down here into the harbour, you'll see some of the inflatables that have been brought ashore recently. And yesterday, the MOD said 1,295 people arrived in 27 boats. Most of them had as many as 50 people crammed on board. But the record number of migrant crossings is putting unprecedented demands on the RNLI and divides some in the Kent communities they pass through. The sheer numbers and a series of controversial Home Office decisions have led to thousands being stranded at a processing centre in Kent, where they face appalling conditions. We've had reports of cases of scabies, of diphtheria, of MRSA. Back in Westminster, the Home Secretary has admitted that the system is broken. But she's also been ratcheting up the rhetoric. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Politics aside, what's really going on with the flow of people into the UK? We explain the numbers, the legality and the human stories at the heart of a long-running political crisis. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the migration crisis explained. At the heart of the current crisis is Manston, a disused RAF base near Ramsgate on the Kent coast. Earlier this year, it was turned into a processing centre. It's hard to get an insider's view, but the reality of life at the facility was revealed in the Sunday Times last weekend by a security manager at Manston. Their words 
are read here by a producer. And remember, this is not supposed to be a prison or a detention centre, but a place to process people claiming asylum, or people who say they're the victims of modern slavery. When the sun goes down, the howling begins. The arrivals, who we call guests, know that the cover of darkness gives them their best opportunity for escape. There are no locked doors, no locked gates, there's no cages, no prisons. It's all open. The only thing stopping them is us, the 240 or so privately contracted security officers. At the same time each day, between 5 and 6pm, the wailing and screaming commences. And that's when some start coming out of their tents. They're shouting in my face, freedom, hotel, housing, accommodation. They're thrusting tiny babies in front of me, screaming, baby. We're told not to put our hands on them, but it often descends into pushing and shoving people back into their tents. The word guest is a bit of a misnomer. Arrivals are all known by a number rather than by name. They wear this number on a band around their wrist. Everyone is stripped of their belongings when they come to Manston. They're fed three meals a day. People are given one change of clothes each week and flip-flops to make it harder to run away. We give them a wash kit, but we break the handle off the toothbrush and give them just the head, or they might use it as a weapon. Manston was only supposed to hold a couple of hundred guests at a time, but in days past, it's held between four and five thousand. We're now releasing the guests who can prove they have someone to stay with in this country. Last week, a lot of guests were released in London, Birmingham, Manchester, and just dropped off in the middle of the country's biggest cities. It's unclear how they made their onward journeys. Manston has become the epitome of our broken immigration system. That account was given to my colleague Caroline Wheeler, the Sunday Times political editor. Matt Dathan, Home Affairs editor for the Times, has been following events at Manston closely, although not as closely as he'd like. Journalists haven't been allowed into the centre. Very few people have actually been allowed to visit it since it was set up in January to process migrants who cross the channel in small boats. Previously, they were processed at facilities in Dover, but um, given there were so many people coming, the facilities at Western Jet Foil in Dover weren't enough. So they opened this new one 20 miles down the road in Munster near Ramsgate. It's on the site at Munster Airport. It's an old RAF site. It's an old sort of military building very basic facilities because they're only really meant to be there for 24 hours in maximum, which is the lawful limit to detain uh, an individual for immigration purposes. But as more and more people came across, they had to expand the facilities at Manston. So they erected temporary marquees like you would find at uh, weddings or festivals. Each marquee houses about 120 people. There was about seven there, I think, mid-October. That's in addition to the roughly 400 who can stay in the main building. During the summer months, it's obviously warmer, the conditions are easier, but um, as winter approached and more and more people were arriving and being kept at Manston, conditions deteriorated and 
you can just imagine what, what it's like living in a marquee for some up to 32 days. I mean, most weren't kept for that long, but sleeping on blankets and even doormats next to about 120 other people. It's a pretty dire situation. Those conditions sound horrendous. And then last week, last Monday, the world became much more aware of just how bad it was through a letter in a bottle. Just remind us a bit about that. We've been writing about the deteriorating situation at Manston for the last few weeks, but it wasn't really until we revealed in the Times, actually, that it was decisions made by Simona Braverman, the Home Secretary herself, that led to conditions um, deteriorating and overcrowding at Manston. And then we heard shocking revelations to the Home Affairs Committee by the Independent Chief Inspector, David Neal, who visited the previous week, actually, and was able to reveal what he described wretched the conditions were there. It was sufficiently alarming when, when I discovered that. I was, I was frankly speechless, and I'm not someone who's, who is normally speechless. So that's why the media sort of descended upon it last week, and it obviously followed that very scary incident at the Dover facility. Kent police have confirmed that several petrol bombs were thrown at a migrant processing centre in Dover. Luckily, no-one else was injured, apart from the, the man himself, obviously, who went on to kill himself at a nearby petrol station. That sort of really brought the media's attention onto how we look after and care for migrants who do arrive in the UK. And this was brought to real kind of sharp attention by a, a young girl who threw a bottle over the fence at Manston to where some photographers were outside taking photos of, of what they could see, which is very little, through the fences. And in the bottle, she described what her own experience of living in Manston was was like it said uh, we really need your help please help us it's not easy for someone who has children there's a lot of children they shouldn't be here they should be in a school not prison our food is very bad it makes us feel sick we are in a difficult life now we feel like we're in prison some of us are very sick it described how there was a disabled child at the centre and he's, he's in a really bad condition. They don't even care about him. So that was just quite a shocking first-person insight into what it was like, not just for a migrant, but a, a child migrant who's being detained at the centre. Are the conditions there any better? Because, you know, when that letter landed and it was picked up across the media, I think people were shocked. You know, it talked about diseases spreading. It talked about diphtheria. Do we know if, you know, a week on, are things any better there? The government said as of Sunday night, 6th of November, there were 1,700 people at Manston. So that's still 100 over its maximum capacity because it was increased to 1,600 of the capacity. And that's down from 4,000 the week before, which is quite a remarkable turnaround. It just shows you how quickly the government could actually transfer people out of Manston if they wanted to take a much more quick, swifter approach. They were helped by the fact that there were no crossings actually last week because of the weather and the terrible conditions in the channel. The, the people smugglers don't really cross the channel when the waves are sort of higher than 50 centimetres, for example. So that gives you an idea of just how quickly the government was able to deal with the situation. But yeah, with diphtheria, scabies, MRSA, uh, COVID have all been 
detected at the camp in the last month. And it's also terrible that the government, I think, that don't allow any kind of um, media anywhere near the centre. I mean, I know it's a detention centre, but they have said and claimed that conditions have improved markedly. They've installed a cookhouse, for example, uh, two weeks ago, because previously they were relying on bringing in um, burger vans and takeaways, which is not uh, suitable if you're staying there for more than a few days. And they've also brought in a GP trained in foreign diseases who's now stationed there permanently and is building a sort of a ward of uh, five or six beds. That's how the government says that conditions have improved. But I think it's still very ill-equipped compared to any other kind of detention facility in the UK where, let's remember, the government are responsible for the care of these people. A lot of people, and some Tory MPs even, were saying, well, if they didn't want to come to Manston, then they should have stayed in Calais. You know, conditions are much worse in a Calais camp than Manston. But the big difference there is that the French government are not responsible for the care of people who are camping out in these camps in Calais. But the British government is responsible for the people it is detaining at Manston. Which sort of takes us to the politics around Manston. You mentioned what some Tory MPs have been saying. This problem seems to have been massively exacerbated under the watch of the current Home Secretary, Suella Brabman. Do we now know how we've ended up in this mess? Let's start from the government's perspective. They say that the situation has got this bad because of the situation out of their control, which has seen more than 12,000 migrants arrive since Suella Brabman first became Home Secretary on the 6th of September. We are already currently paying £7 million a day to accommodate migrants in hotels while they wait for their asylum claim. So that's what the government would say. However, we've been talking to lots of people who work in the Home Office and have worked in the Home Office recently, and they very much put the blame at Suella Braverman. The situation was that um, before Suella Braverman became Home Secretary, when Priti Patel was Home Secretary, uh, the officials in the Home Office said that despite how bad things got, she would always make sure the Home Office didn't breach its legal duty not to detain people for more than 24 hours or at least do as best as can. However, when Sola Braverman came in, they said that she started resisting the automatic approach where you transfer people from Munston to hotels if they haven't found other accommodation across the country because she wanted to cut the cost of hotels and thought it was politically very bad look to be spending so much money on housing migrants in hotels. And a lot of Tory MPs were also opposing, not just Tory MPs actually, Labour MPs as well, were opposing hotels being opened in their patch because it dented tourism, it had an effect on the local community. So they were opposed to that and sort of government took their views into account and we were told that she was very slow at signing off any hotels for migrants. And yes, she did sign off hotels. She says herself that since she became Home Secretary at the beginning of September, Nine and a half thousand migrants have moved from Manston to hotels, and out of a total of twelve thousand, so that still leaves two and a half thousand. But we were told that there's a big, very big difference between her claiming that she signed hotels off, and the difference between commissioning new hotels. And it, ah. this came to light when Grant Shapps replaced her as Home Secretary for six days when Liz Truss sacked her for breaching security on the nineteenth of October. How much did things change in those six days? From talking to People who worked in Home Office at the time, they said that Grant Shapps came in, he was presented with the evidence about how the government was in 
risking breaching the law by detaining people for more than that 24-hour period. And he immediately commissioned uh, the, the sign-up of new hotels. What I saw was a situation where uh, a centre that was set up to be a processing centre, now this is at Manston Airport uh, in Kent, uh, was uh, tipping into becoming uh, an unofficial detention centre. I was very keen to ensure that we maintained ourselves within the law. So three hotels were opened within four days of him becoming Home Secretary. And he said actually on a Monday, 7th of November, that he was told the government was in risk of breaching the law. And so he acted immediately. And he very pointedly said, well, I don't know what legal advice my predecessor, Sir Ella Braverman, was reading, but he said, this is what I did. So it's quite clear what he thinks in terms of Sir Ella Braverman not doing her duty and signing off and opening new hotels. There is already now a legal challenge that was lodged last week against the government's treatment of people at Manston and unlawfully detaining them for more than 24 hours. Wow, and that presumably could be quite expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Robert Jenner, the new immigration minister, he, he did point out that the government is repeatedly and continuously taken to court over claims of that they've acted unlawfully. And he did point out also that the government has, while it has a legal duty not to detain someone on immigration grounds for more than 24 hours, it also has a competing legal duty not to leave someone in destitution. So you can't just um, release someone from Manson if they don't have anywhere to go to. And actually, another way the government have tried to alleviate the pressure at Manson is to actively encourage those who have an, a, an address to go to, to leave Manston. But that, as we, as we learned last week, led to quite a lot of confusion and, and some migrants saying, yes, I have an address to go to, but actually they didn't. And they were dumped at Victoria Coach Station with nowhere to go. You know, amid all these political briefings, it's really hard to know where we are, to know what's really happening. So just taking a step back, talk us through who are the people who are crossing the channel in small boats at the moment? And is the number much higher than before? They're much higher, yes. Almost 40,000 people have uh, crossed this year. That's double the number that arrived around about this time last year. So the whole of last year, 28,500 people arrived in small boats, but uh, a huge amount, I think more than 8,000 arrived in November. So th the fact that we're going into winter doesn't necessarily mean the numbers are going to fall. It all really matters on the conditions in the channel and, and how much demand there is. And we know there's a, a massive demand to come to the UK. The people coming have changed. Last year, we had 800 Albanians come to the UK. 2020, we saw 50 Albanians come UK and this year we've seen more than 12,000 Albanians so that's a big rise and we've also seen a massive rise in Afghans coming the theory there is that those who were not given safe passage during the evacuation in uh, August 2021 the theory there is that people have resorted to taking their own journeys and then the other big nationalities coming over the channel in small boats are um, Iraqis, Kurds, Iranians and there's a few Vietnamese and then some from Eritrea and Ethiopia although and North African migrants tend to try and get to the UK in the back of lorries because the cost of getting in a small boat is so, is so big right now. Coming up, we'll hear about the people smugglers advertising their services on Albanian TikTok. For four years, a civil war raged at one of the richest university colleges in Britain. She decided to tell me that Martin was in big trouble. 
Was it a plot to bring one man down? They're allowing the silence to prosecute you. Or was something else going on? It seemed to me merciless, pitiless. I'm Andrew Billen, a journalist at The Times. The feud continues this Thursday here on Stories of Our Times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the sound of a video made by people smugglers and posted on Albanian TikTok. The music seems to have been chosen to convey a sense of adventure. This is a video of one of the crossings that attempts to show how easy it is to cross the channel and how safe it is, really. So this particular post says in Albanian, passage to the UK for £3,500 only on the days with good weather. Journey from Dunkirk and Calais. It's advertising as if it was a ferry crossing, uh, but you can see how packed this boat is. This dinghy really should only be holding about 10 people maximum. There's no actual seats in there, they're just sitting on the edge. TikTok is the main means through which Albanian people smugglers are persuading people to make these dangerous journeys across the channel. We found out the sort of rough model that is used to try and get people from Albania to UK. Uh, the Kurdish people smugglers are dominant in Calais and run a very successful business, really. They've been there since the crossings really started to accelerate in, in 2018 onwards. And they've really established a very sophisticated network of supplying the boats, of how to connect with the migrants and how they evade police by ever-evolving tactics of where to launch the boats, where to meet migrants, and sometimes even providing a taxi service where they are taken from a different destination into the channel and then transferred to boats. So they're very successful, the Kurds. And so what Albanian organised crime groups have latched onto is that if they supply the people to the Kurdish gangs, then they can make a lot of money. The Kurds do the crossing and the Albanians sort of almost recruit yeah, there are other gangs, but it, the Albanians have sort of seemed to have latched on to the Kurdish model. And for every 
person they pass on to the Kurds, they, they get around about 1,000 and 2,000 pounds. But how they recruit, they're advertising mainly on TikTok. And when their accounts close down by TikTok, they just repeatedly upload new accounts and new adverts showing just how successful the trip has been by showing people, Albanians posing by London Eye and Big Ben and other tourist hotspots in, in the UK and showing what a great life they're apparently living, how much they can earn in the UK and how safe the crossing is by basically making it look like a, a ferry service like you might get when you're on holiday and offering various prices and sometimes even offering Friday discounts. I mean, this sounds more like a travel agency. Yeah, exactly. It's quite astonishing how successful and how blasé it is as well. And the more people that get across the channel safely, the more successful it is and the more safe it appears to migrants who see their fellow countrymen being able to make that journey for a relatively cheap price and able to earn uh, a lot more than that crossing costs them and then able to come back to Albania and then go again next year. So this is effectively cheap labour coming to do a season of work and then going back? That's what um, Home Office, that's what police and that's what Albanians we've spoken to over the last few weeks believe is the main driver, that it's a temporary kind of trip where they come here, earn money and go back. But then again, we don't know what the 12,000 people who've come here since January are going to do because we're only assessing that on people who've come here previously. What are the official legal grounds they're arriving on? Is it asylum they're seeking? Because there's been such a big rise, that it's still unclear what proportion are claiming asylum, what proportion are not claiming asylum, and what proportion are actually claiming they're victims of modern slavery. So the Home Office believes that they are using those two systems basically as a backdoor into Britain and a means to an end. And then once their asylum claim is lodged and they're put in a hotel or wherever they else they might be while they wait for their asylum claim, they're in the UK and they can then move freely and go and work for whoever they were intending to work for. What exactly is the law around modern slavery and what are the grounds they're, they're claiming on? The Home Office stats last week, actually, for the July to September, showed that Albania, for the third consecutive quarter, made up the biggest number of victims claiming to be victims of modern slavery under the Modern Slavery Act, which was made brought in in 2015. And basically 90% of all Albanian modern slavery claims from July to September were granted uh, reasonable grounds. So the, the Home Office people were saying, you've got a reasonable ground to claim that you're a victim of slavery and will assess your claim. And has, has the, the cost suddenly come down? I mean, what, why, why are so many coming now? It's because the typical route that was used previously for Albanians in particular in the back of a lorry has gone up to about €25,000. But the trip for a small boat crossing is currently around about 3000 to €5,000, so more than a fifth of the price of going in the back of a lorry. And Matt, from what you're hearing, what is the government planning to do to try to improve the situation? It's trying to stop the crossings in the first place, but obviously it's failing to do that. So a deal with France is the number one priority for Rishi Sunak, and he's meeting Emmanuel Macron in Egypt at the COP summit to try and start those negotiations. That is a deal with the French to try and put UK border force officers on, on their beaches to make sure that they're stopping the boats in the first place because the interception rate is so low, it's 42%. And the Home Office believes that 
they need to get to about 75%. And they believe that if they get to that rate, then the business model for the smugglers will become unviable to run a business on that. Other policies like the Rwanda policy is stuck in the courts. It's unlikely to be implementable for another few months at the earliest. But then what they're doing with people who are here and arriving in the UK is that they're having to rely temporarily on the use of hotels, which is currently on average, I think, about £110 per night per person. They want to try and open other sort of old military barracks or RAF bases where they can accommodate people much more cheaply. And then one more thing that Rishi Sunak is really keen to try and do is accelerate the time it takes to process asylum claims because at the moment it's taking an average of 480 days to process each asylum claim. So it's causing a massive backlog. And one of the other potential policy changes that people have, are talking about is, is perhaps changing the Modern Slavery Act, which was obviously you know, one of the great legacies of Theresa May's time in office. Is that likely? Yeah, that's very likely they'll attempt to do that. The, the argument that the Home Office uses is that Theresa May, her act, was never intended to help migrants. It was more to help people in the UK who were victims of modern slavery. So, for example, people forced to work below the minimum wage at, in, in, in factories. But the idea is to basically try and raise the threshold to show, to prove that you have been a victim of modern slavery. And it's very much one of Svela Bradman's top priorities. She last week accused Albanians in particular of abusing the Modern Slavery Act. This year has seen a surge in the number of Albanian arrivals, Madam Deputy Speaker. Many of them, I'm afraid to say, abusing our modern slavery laws. We are working to ensure Albanian cases are processed and individuals are removed as swiftly as possible. Which drew a furious reaction from... Adi Rama, the Albanian Prime Minister, accused her of discriminating against Albanians and not treating his country with the respect it deserves and, and insisted that his country was much poorer and Albanians have a right to seek a better life just like people in the UK might have sought a better life. He actually compared it to a lot of Brits who, who left the UK after the Second World War to go to Australia. It was really an embarrassment for our civilization to hear all kind of crazy words like invasion. This kind of language is nothing but fueling xenophobia, the great British tradition of uh, integrating the minorities. Britain was a role model in this and now is becoming like a madhouse. And that... With all these different policy um, options that are now open to the government, I mean, do they have a sense of what the public wants? There's very fresh polling from the More in Common group showing that especially Conservative voters from 2019 will punish the government if they don't really tackle the issue of the China migrant crisis. Um, 47% of the public who voted Tory in 2019 say they wouldn't vote for the Conservatives again. The top reason being their failure to stop um, migrants crossing the channel. And so I think immigration is very rapidly rising up the list of priorities. After a few years of post-Brexit, where we saw the issue of immigration really slip down the list of priorities amongst public, because I think people are quite surprised that despite Brexit, immigration is still running at such a high level. Given that sort of frustration 
amongst the electorate. And, you know, as you mentioned, some of the, the heightened rhetoric around this subject, you know, we did have Zuela Braverman, the Home Secretary, describing it as an invasion of our southern coast. We also know that, you know, the police have have said that a petrol bomb attack on an immigration centre in Dover was motivated by extreme right-wing ideology. How does this change the British political spectrum? Will there be more pressure on the further ends of the right wing now? After Sir Braverman made those comments comparing the migrant crisis to an invasion, Tory MPs, Sir Roger Gale, for example, whose constituency includes Manston, he warned that this will only fuel the support for the far right. Her language yesterday, I'm afraid, suggested that she is only really interested in playing to the right wing. I've had a certain amount of abuse mm. for the stand that I've taken. Not in support of illegal migration, I'm not, but in support of humane treatment of people who've crossed the channel and have a right to be properly processed by us. Mm. And it's sort of giving credibility to those arguing that we need to stop migrants crossing the channel full stop because it's an invasion rather than people fleeing poverty, fleeing the war or fleeing persecution. Swella Bradman depicted everyone coming across the channel as economic migrants who have no right to, to claim asylum, whereas actually the figures show something very different and 75% of those who came across the channel last year were granted asylum. So it does paint a picture that isn't reality and plays into the hands of the far right. The more that you use that kind of language rather than trying to depoliticize it and, and deal with it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Home Affairs Editor, Matt Dathan. You can find all of Matt's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers today were James Shield, Priyanka Deladia, and Olivia Case, with production help from Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.